Uh, Phil, you ready? Absolutely. All right. Hello and welcome to another episode of How to Build a Theatre, a podcast charting the creation of a new theatre here in Brussels, Belgium. My name is Edward McMillan. And my name is Phil Wilcox. And we're here today with our guest, who we're going to be announcing in a little bit. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm fine, thanks, Ed. Yeah, it's uh, not to be too British about it, but I'm going to talk immediately about the weather. It's it's wet. Oh, my goodness, it's wet here in London, and we've got about mm. two weeks of it. But you know what? We had such a great summer, I don't mind. It was my birthday a couple of days ago. I was spoiled rotten and working hard. But, uh, yeah, it's all good. How's, how's life in Brussels, Ed? Lovely. Happy 21st to you, Phil. Uh, <laughs> once again. <laughs> once again. Yes, it's very warm here. Um, very good. Um, I guess this is the part where I need to tell you a little bit about what's happening with the bridge. Oh, um, let's get straight on to it. Yeah, yeah. No, let's get to it. <laughs> why bother? Um, with, why bother with the niceties? Why bother with the pleasantries? Go on then. Tell uh, me. Get, tell me. You're obviously me. gagging to tell me. <laughs> yeah, there's so much excitement going on. No, no. Uh, we are. I feel we are turning a corner from our little um, hiccup earlier in the summer and I feel that we are getting back on the right track so we have been spending our time basically looking at different venues here in Brussels not to not as venues to for us to be permanently but just as venues that we can actually show something just as we did for our first production Vincent River back in October November 2021 which we showed at a place called Full Circle um, which is in in one of the neighborhoods in Brussels so we have been looking at various different uh, options, uh, exciting spaces, not all of them classical theatrical spaces. I'm a big believer that you can really do theatre anywhere. Um, and for me, it's always a case of seeing if a venue can work logistically, um, as in, can we fit enough people in? Uh, can they sit down there? Are there toilets? Can we get the equipment in? Is there any equipment? Is there power supply? All these kind of questions. Um, and then matching, if if the answers to those questions are yes, then we can match the venue with a, a, a play because not every play, not every production in my mind fits into would fit into specific venues yeah toilets and power seem to be the big one don't they really with that sort of because site-specific theater is wonderful because it takes it out of theater and it's probably one of the easiest ways to get an audience to feel like they're really involved in a production isn't it you know they're not sat in a vel red velvet seat looking at the pros arch with people beyond it you're actually in the place you're in the basement with them you're in the haunted house or whatever i don't know <laughs> terrible examples but yeah when you find those places it is sometimes it's true true very very on point um but you find that place and you think this is amazing oh my goodness this is exactly where this production needs to be do you have toilets? Yeah, there's one toilet out back and the lock's broken. Uh, right, great. Okay, power? Yeah, well, it was updated in the 1940s. So, <laughs> oh, right, okay. We need a yeah. generator. We need porta potties, you know. We need to bring it in. Yeah, yeah. And the, and, and annoyingly, that kind of stuff is really expensive. So, mm -hmm. so it's, it, and it's important to have the, these, yeah, the basic amenities. Um, we've actually also, you know, one of the places we were looking at uh, back in January, February, was this old supermarket it had a toilet but only had one and for uh, a theatrical space really to get everyone in and out just logistically in in the interval or just before the show you need more than one 
uh, if you're talking about like 100 people. That would be super cool, though, wouldn't it? A piece in an old supermarket, and you could you could stock the shelves with things related. I don't know; it would have to be quite a specific piece, but stock the shelves with related paraphernalia. <laughs> Yeah, so so we're looking at a few different spaces, uh, a few different uh, productions. Hope I mean, you know, I would love all of my ideas to to come to fruition, but I mean, hopefully, we've got I think maybe four or five different options. So hopefully, one of them will uh, come to fruition. And now we're in the in the stage of basically um, negotiating with the different venues uh, to see what is possible. Uh, also, not only financially, also uh, yeah, on on the logistical side of things as well. I guess one of the big things about what your permanent venue, the perma ven, if you will, the perma venue uh, would have enabled you to do would be to have planned much further. Um, and what this is now having to make you do again is actually just draw in because I know you, you're a, you know you're a um, clever, ambitious chap, um, and you'll be thinking far in advance. But actually, this is having to make you fight fires which are much closer to you. I mean fight fires maybe it's the wrong thing you know line up other stuff which is a bit which is much closer in uh, in your vision isn't it no but you're right phil and and i ideally would like to be planning things a lot more in advance uh if possible but it's 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 i, I think it's it's making sure that you're doing both simultaneously at the moment so planning the short-term things and we get them up and running but i'm also already you know talking to people about what we could do in 2024 even though we still don't have a venue maybe we will have a venue in in september 2023 maybe we won't who knows i mean we, it's it's uh, there's a lot of unknowns that we're trying to play with at the moment and nothing focuses the mind like a deadline <laughs> we've got a production lined up in 2024 well, we need to find a venue for it where's that supermarket right, <laughs> <laughs> right. exactly <laughs> Just, exactly. um, yes, yes, just, yes. just briefly, because obviously we've got to get Francesco on for a, for a conversation with him in a moment. Um, what you might you might not want to go into this, so this might not even make the episode. But along with the with the ups and downs of the bridge as a as a company as an entity, um, we know that through the podcast that this is obviously really this is intrinsically your baby. You know, this is something that's really close to your heart. How are how are you doing? <laughs> we don't go down the full therapy route, but is it, uh, you know, as part of this podcast, it was it was charting the ups and downs, the highs and the lows. So what are your, um, you know, how are you, how are you doing emotionally uh, uh, through all this, this, this time? <laughs> Thanks, Phil, for the therapy question. <laughs> yes. Um, I am okay. I think I also, I mean, I, I have ups and downs at the moment as well. You know, I, I mean, I mean, I, th I guess the first thing to say is that it, it's I'm in a very different position from this time last year because I feel we have um a core well we have our core team for a start um who are kind of this support system and a way to bounce ideas off and then you have the wider kind of um support system of people who are who are who are kind of um championing us and helping us to move forward just from a psychological sense um i think it was it was two weeks ago that uh i was uh we had a me, me and ava uh my my co-partner co were just having one of our weekly chats and it was the first time and we were 
talking about the different productions, different different like options for which productions go in which could go in which venues. And it was the first time that I was starting to get a little bit excited again since since the setback back in June. So and, and that was kind of and that has spurred me on a little bit to be like, OK, like I see a tangible outcome here. I can see a direction of travel. I, I can see that it's not an impossible task and that that enables me to continue. Um and I also for our what we're calling our weekend workshops, which is musical theatre workshops on on Sunday mornings. I am uh, leading the singing on that for this term, and that's also been really nice. Actually, doing doing the facilitation work directly, and that's I've been really enjoying that. So there there are these like up moments, and I've been really really um, really motivated to to work. I think I think it's you know I mean it's it, for me really the 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 thing that plagues my mind at the moment is is financial like like always we've been doing this voluntarily for the past year and a half and that can't continue forever um so how do we make it work really on a on a longer term basis and that's that's a question that that we we've always been asking ourselves but we haven't quite managed to make work yet and it's not far, of course, from the life uh, of, a, of a freelancer, isn't it? It's that doing uh, that melting pot of the things that um, inspire you and give you fulfilment, but also the solvency, the, the, the fact that you, you also need to support yourself to make money and put food on the table unless you're independently wealthy. All topics we've had uh, in the podcast before. And also we have um, we read people sometime on this podcast and try and delve past the jargon. The fact that you have jumped back in doing something artistically involved, Ed, and you called it doing the facilitating. I'm sorry, we're going to have to go for coffee at some point and talk about that. But it also, the freelance lifestyle leads us on to our guest, doesn't it? Ed, do you want to introduce Francesca? Yes, well, you, we've already mentioned his name twice, so that's a bit of a, a, a sneak peek. I guess he will also be advertised on the podcast episode uh, anyway. Uh, so to, with us this, this, this month, we have uh, Francesco Bianchi. Uh, he is uh, based between Italy and Brussels, um, and he is a freelance director, a playwright, a writer in his own right, and also a translator. Um, so welcome on to the show, Francesco. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here. Great to have you. Great to have you with us. I mean, I, I, I guess, I don't know, like as a freelancer, maybe I just want to start with this quick question, Phil, if I may. As a freelancer, do some of those things chime with you, which we were just talking about? Absolutely. I mean, the coping with um, economical stuff, it's absolutely the first thing that we wake up with in the morning, I think. Uh, because as a freelance, of course, you have to be your own boss. So uh, it means that, of course, you have to um, kind of create your own job, which is, of course, different. It's diverse, uh, but it's always you have to be the first one chasing it. So uh, I can completely relate with what you were saying. It's true, isn't it? It shines very true. I like this idea, Francesco, as well. You, you sort of you, you mentioned there that you wake up with the the money worries, the economic worries, implying that by the time that you go to bed, hopefully you've done something to to make a bit of money, but also that you've 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 gone the full circle and you're back to being creative. You're you're back to sort of um, you know you've scratched your artistic itch in that day as well. You've done something that's that's, Absolutely. that's felt truly sort of creative um, of it. Obviously, we know it doesn't always work like that at a 24-hour cycle, but it's a, it's a nice sort of analogy of it. Um, 
And yeah, what you mentioned there about, of course, um, the, uh, the 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 pros and cons there. And again, it's it's very easy to, to we we talk about them. I suppose they're quite possibly quite easy to sort of understand and see from the point of view of someone who's, for example, full time employed or just in another employment. But even justifying that to ourselves is quite tricky sometimes. You know, you that sort of I've done it. it was it was a recent birthday of mine, as Ed said. It was my twenty first birthday once again. Um, and you sort not that I see these as great milestones, but you know, you you do sit down sometimes and you think, where am I? What am I doing? Am I happy with this? Fast forward ten years time, do I want to be doing the same thing? Would I still be fulfilled? Would I still be happy? Um, comparing to someone else who's done 10 years of a, in a company and, and progressed through the natural rungs of that ladder, or to someone else who's done a, a, uh, an employment which has no progression, but they're perfectly happy with the fact that they're always just going to do this thing for 36 hours a week, which enables them to do everything else that they want to do in the other hour. You know, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting sort of mental approach to think. Well, I think it's very... Um, it's. It... I, what what I find very interesting is um, the fact that some people with which I talk, friends of mine or or co-workers as well, which are not freelance, um, tend to uh, not understand completely what it means to uh, waking up. I always take this waking up uh, example because it's basically uh, the big difference between knowing what to do since when you wake up and, and inventing what to do. So... Uh, what I find uh, interesting is that as a freelance, of course, you are concerned, of course, um, if you don't move, nothing moves uh, in your job. Mm -hmm. you, have, you have to be the mm -hmm. first one moving stuff, uh, which is um, fatiguing sometimes. But uh, my mm -hmm. opinion is that um, actually when you do it, when you start doing it, you always get creative. So the concerns are like, I mean... I'm Italian and we always have these coffee things. Like the first thing you do in the morning is make your own coffee. And then after the coffee, you can start being creative. Uh, and the fact that you don't have a proper like occupation like every day, 36 hours uh, a week, but you have loads of them. That, that's what I find interesting because uh, mm -hmm. uh, you have, uh, you kind of invent your own job for the day or for the week or for the project. So um, I find it quite uh, exciting. Also, if mm. it's maybe more difficult in the sense of tranquility, in the sense of serenity, of knowing what to do. But I like not to know what to do. I, uh, I kind of chose it and, and it's, um, I think it, it, it nurtures my mind. Mm. You've got to, and you've got to be brave with that as well, haven't you? Because I, I feel that if I'm not doing something, that means my career is stagnant. And that's, that's a tricky one to get over. But sometimes, actually, taking the holiday, going off, relaxing, resting, making sure that you have time to dream the ideas so that eventually you can wake up, make the coffee and get on with work uh, is, is healthy. Oh, what a lovely bit of therapy on a Thursday <laughs> morning we're having. I mean, <laughs> I mean, but everything you say, Phil, also it does apply to, to the world of work, the world of full-time work as well. People, people think that they need Could. to be working and doing all the time, but actually taking these times to, this time to dream is also really important in, in full-time uh, employment as well. Um, Francesco, since you mentioned your many different uh, jobs, perhaps you would like to just delve into that a little bit and tell us what kind of things you get up to on a daily or weekly or monthly basis and uh, how you got into this weird and wacky world of theatre. Yes, absolutely. Um, I will try to be brief with that, but <clears throat> I don't know if I'll manage that. 
Um, anyway, um, well, basically, I am, first of all, I'm a playwright. I started doing theater as a playwright, so I started writing for theater after my studies. Um, I did academic studies, um, so as a dramaturg, as a, a knower of, of theater. Uh, and then I started writing when I won, when I was um, 22, 23. Uh, and I kind of, uh, of course, I went to theater many times per month and um and it was it's always been my first passion as a kid you didn't write so you only really started at 22 three oh well actually um i think i can say that i started when i was 22 23 i didn't write Mm. before um i i studied very much but i didn't put myself uh, into the writing until some point um then after the right after the studying i decided that i wanted to try it and to see if I was able to do kind of the same thing that I was studying with the great writers, of course. I, I did uh, my, um, my undergrad um, uh, dissertation was on Samuel Beckett, uh, and uh, it's been, he's been my um, you know, reference uh, for, for many years. And, and I really went into uh, what was the dynamics of his writing uh, of his uh, investigating um, characters, actions, situations. And I kind of said, okay, let's give it a try. Let's try to, to do the same thing. Of course, not thinking I was like Beckett, but uh, since I studied the process, I wanted to get into the process as well. And then um, I started writing. I started um, going to theater to see rehearsals. I met some directors and I started <clears throat> to work also as an assistant director, which leads me to my second job, which is um, to direct plays. Um, and then uh, the, the third, let, let's, let's put it into three things. So I'm a playwright, uh, director, and translator. And at some point while I was working, I happened to work for many years into a very important theater in Italy, uh, which is called uh, Fondazione Teatro Due, uh, which is in Parma, um, between Bologna and Milan. Um, and I worked there as assistant director, dramaturg. Um, I uh, also worked into communication. Uh, so I kind of went into the full life of a, of a theater. So I, I, I could uh, follow productions from the idea to the choosing of, of the cast and then rehearsals and then how to communicate a show. Uh, so this was very important for me because I could uh, enter into the... the, the the life of a production. So I, I spent time with the actors, I spent time with the director. Uh, you know, the same old job, like from bringing the coffee to everything else. Um, and at some point... You were the, you were the office intern exactly, of the theatre. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but in a theatre, which is magic. So it, it was my dream job. Mm-hmm. So actually I didn't feel the, 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 the um, tiredness because I really liked what I was mm-hmm. doing and, and I don't want to, to say that it's not... Uh, difficult to work in a theater because I think every job is difficult and can be uh, at least uh, challenging. Uh, but I really liked it, so I really put myself into it. And at some point, I was uh, in a chat with um, with uh, the artistic director of, of Teatro Due in Parma, uh, and they were uh, talking about a new production. Uh, it was a production of uh, Misery, um, taken by uh, taken from the the. Stephen King's novel uh, in the adaptation of uh, William Goldman by William Goldman, 
Um, and they were talking about the fact that they were thinking about the, produ the production, but they couldn't think about it properly because they didn't have it translated into Italian because they were still looking mm. for a translator. And so I said, you know, if, if you need, I could do a very rough translation just for you to read it so that you can have an idea. Uh, and they said, okay, try it if you want. And so I kind of translated it really, really quickly in three or four days. And then I gave it back. Uh, they read it and they said, we like the translation, so probably we will use your translation. So I was officially a translator, um, like by <laughs> chance in a way. Um, and then of course I had to work on the translation more and more because I wanted to, I mean, it was a really rough draft. But, um, but that's how I started, because I actually um, took uh, a text, took a piece of, of, of uh, theater writing, and I had to make it immediately comprehensible for someone who was not really into English language. Of course, everybody speaks English as a second language here, but uh, in, a dif in different levels. So I had to make it comprehensible. And this kind of, of job led me to uh, saying, well, actually, I could do it as a job. So... Here comes my third job. I mean, really interesting <clears throat> that you just fell into it and 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 and, di and discovered it, I guess, through through working in other aspects of the theatre. And and you're not the first person we've interviewed who who that has happened to. Actually, I would like to though delve a little bit backwards also and just ask you why did you decide then to study dramaturgy in the first place? What what, what was your connection to theatre? Well. Um... I think as many people here in Italy, I started doing theater as a non-professional. So like with the local town uh, theater company. Um, and the very first experience I have, apart from going to the theater and see shows with my family, uh, I come from a very little town near Rome. So for us to go to the theater, it meant to uh, take the car, drive for 40 minutes, arrive to Rome. So it's not... I, I didn't have a, a proper access to theater in my hometown. Um, and of course, I liked theater, but I didn't know very much what it was about. Uh, so as a non-professional, the first time I said, um, I really want to do this job is when I, I first saw a rehearsal. So the process of making theater instead of just watching it as an audience. Uh, when I saw that, I said, I, I don't know how, but I want to work in this field. So I was 17, 18. Uh, and so I started doing theater in this non-professional company as an actor. Um, at some point while I was studying, um, I was studying literature, comparative literature. Um, so I had a much more academic uh, approach to, to theater and theatrical literature. Uh, I said, okay, as an actor, um, I was still doing things as a non-professional actor. So it kind, kind of came to me the idea that I would have to make a choice. Like if I wanted to, uh, to continue with the acting uh, career or at least to try to start it or to do something else. And I said, probably I will never feel really sure as an actor, sure of my uh, talent if I have one. Uh, and maybe th this is something I could not cope with like not being sure that I am good at it. Uh, also because um, many, I think 99%, maybe 100% of actors in Italy are freelance uh, and uh, always uh, looking for a call, waiting for a call from a theater. Uh, so I said, if I am not sure of my talent, I will never be completely, you know, I will never sleep 
uh, <laughs> good. So I said, okay, uh, let's see if I can do something else. Not because I wanted to be an actor uh, and I was not brave enough, but because it kind of didn't feel like the right thing to do. So I started writing and I said, okay, uh, at the very moment I started writing something and I took two of my friends and I said, could you read it, please? Uh, can we just, you know, pretend that we are doing it? And it was good. Not good in the sense that it could be produced, but it was something I really felt like mine. So I said, okay, I, I want to, uh, this is the, 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 the field of theater I want to fit in. And then the direction came right after that, because while I was writing and then I discovered that in order to write well, and also to translate well, you have to know actor, you have to know uh, how they work. <laughs> These words have to be said and not um, read, actually. So to have a relationship with human beings that have to act to enable emotions and dynamics and conflicts to be, um, to be on stage and to be visible to the audience, I really had to know the practice. So I said, okay, let's go back to uh, rehearsals, uh, let's 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 go back to theaters. Not only in my room writing, but you know, uh, trying to to enhance my writing with that. And so I came to be an assistant director, and more recently uh, a director myself. Um, and 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 the trans I'm curiously translating for me uh, came right as it uh, happened with writing, because translating meant okay. Now I, I'm actually writing something because it will be a different play. It will be the same play, but in another language. So different actors, different pronunciation, different words. Words sound differently, so you have to find the right thing. And so that's how, I mean, I basically love the fact that someone can write something, uh, stage something, and then there will be other human beings playing it, probably leaving it, and other human beings watching it and probably, hopefully, enjoying it. So... It's a really simple um, uh, relationship, relationship with, uh, with theater for me because it's basically, as Peter Brook said, it's basically someone doing something and someone else watching it. It sounds like a really, how you describe it anyway, it sounds like a really kind of, uh, natural growth process of going through and you've just been what's lovely is that you've obviously just been open enough uh, you know to your own thoughts and feelings throughout that it's it's sort of guided you and obviously sometimes we can we don't necessarily know that that's what's going on in the moment but with hindsight you look back and you go oh yeah that was kind of what I was feeling you know I'm not in, uh, experienced enough in this in order to do that thing which I really like but I don't think it's that that I want to do so I'm going to look at something else you know it's it's a really lovely way forward. Yeah, I don't know. It's just that that actually, I mean, I think it's kind of, I mean, for me, it's funny what happened to me. And so I wanted just to, to share it for you, uh, with you uh, guys. It's, uh, it's that basically I said when, when I was deciding, when I was doing the, you know, the, the, the non-professional acting, I said, will anyone tell me if I am good enough to be a professional or not? Probably no one will take the responsibility to tell me go on or stop. Uh, and so I, I, I couldn't feel sure enough to, to do that. So I said, okay, maybe I want to be, at some point, I want to be someone who can actually give the right advice also to, to a young actor or a young writer or a young director. So I want to know more. 
instead of I want to do more, I want to know more in order to do. So that's why uh, at some point I switched from I want to be on stage and I want my things to be on stage together with other people. So it's more it's 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 less narcissistic and more sharing because it, uh, I, I my experience and apparently it's not only my experience is that sometimes it's a narcissistic idea that wants to uh, that leads us to, to to the stage and of course it is and there's there's in my opinion there's a healthy part of it but at some point for me it was like okay if uh, if I am doing it just for myself just to tell myself I'm good enough or not I'm not giving anything to, to, to the audience to, 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 it's not a job, it's just uh, something I do for myself and I don't want to be like that. So writing and then directing and then translating is more like sharing for me. It's more something that concerns uh, be with other pe being with other people, uh, working with other people and feeling other people in a way. That's a really nice way to put it, Francesco, mm. actually. Uh, wanting to share your passion on, and share everything. And that's also how I feel about, about running a theatre, it's about sharing rather than this narcissistic view of things. You kind of mentioned it already uh, a little bit, but I'd like to delve into how you go about, what is your process of translating? You, you say it's quite uh, almost like writing a play itself, but how, how do you actually approach a play when you, when you get a text and you need to translate it? Well, um, there are two things I would like to, to say. One is more intellectual and I will leave it for the second part. And another one is much more um, uh, from the heart. From the heart, I would, I would say that my approach to a text is that I have to fall in love with it. So basically, I read a text, I read the play, and I kind of... Uh, some, some plays, for me, are more... Um, some plays work better for me than others. So when I find a play that it's actually you know, moving something in me, then I say, okay, uh, that's the first thing. I have to be moved. And not because I decide if the text, the text is good enough. It's, it, it's to see if I am good enough to feel it and to understand it. So, uh, and then I basically, I would say that I uh, approach it like page, page to page. So first page, let's see. I read it through first time, a couple of times. I read the whole play a couple of times. Uh, I take some very simple notes and then I just start because I try not to be haunted by too many things. Uh, for example, uh, registers of language or, or uh, technical uh, advices which are written in the play. I try to put them away for the moment and just focus on the, uh, on the lines, uh, which are the most important things in general in, in, in spoken theater, let's say. Um, so yeah, my, my process is, is this one. I just uh, read it through and then I just go page to page and, and, and word to word and I try to find coherences uh, between the lines of a same character, for example. Um, and I say it's like writing because sometimes in the process of translation from one language to another, I just translate from English and, to Eng and into English. So I, d I don't know many languages, but... Uh, but in general, you have to invent what is maybe a dialect in English or a slang. You have to kind of find, um, you know, uh, a similar thing that could work for an Italian audience. So it could refer to completely different things. So someone from, I don't know, Yorkshire 
can be, uh, I have to decide if I want to invent a dialect, invent a language, or, or to, to find a dialect which comes from, I don't know, Puglia, for example. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes I cannot do that. It, I, I try to know the, the author, uh, the most, uh, yeah, the more I can. Uh, so I try to read other plays by the same author. I try to, to see if there are staged uh, productions of the play. So I do some re research before starting. But then at some point, I have to empty my mind and try to say, okay, that's me, uh, the words of the text, and the language of arrival. So uh, I try to be more free when I translate. And then to correct it after I finished. The, the intellectual thing I was about to say is a very uh, boring thing, but, but it's really helpful for me is um, I say that translating is like writing, writing because I come from uh, a Marxist school uh, in which Walter Benjamin uh, wrote something which is, I think, the most important thing about translating, uh, which is uh, if we imagine the, the work, like the play uh, or a book or whatever, as a circle, uh, the translator is a line that touches the circle. So there are... Uh, an infinite number of possible translations that touch the, 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 the work. So as a translator, I always try not to be uh, uh, ultimate. I know that my translation will be one translation uh, of a work which is much more complex than that. So that's why I kind of... And of course, I have to touch the play, and then I have to, it has to go somewhere else. Uh, so in that sense, I kind of write it again, because of course I will have to invent some words, I have to invent some dialects, I have to invent some situations, always trying to be the most faithful I can to, to, the, to the play, because of course I'm not the author in that case. You can't, you can't, I've got so many questions, Francesco, about it's certainly the specifics of English to Italian and Italian to English, vice versa, because um, it, it just sort of sparks my mind up, because I do, I, I'm largely in the world of opera, and obviously we sing uh, a, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot in translation. I was, I was going to ask you why it's important to translate to the vernacular of a particular country. But I, I might side that question, because I think because this whole podcast is about an English language theatre in Brussels, we've, you know, between Ed and myself, we've, we've kind of put our things... If you've got, if you've got more to say, then, then, then go for it. But um, I just think in, in terms of the nitty-gritty of Italian to English and stuff like that, you're, um, you've described it as a process and it's ongoing, it's like a living thing. So it's never going to be that set piece, which is, is never going to move. But Italian famously has so few words in comparison to English. Um, and then you talk about things like dialect. Now, of course, you know, the English dialect is wildly different. Someone from Liverpool speaks wildly different to someone from London, someone from Cornwall to someone from Scotland, Wales, Ireland, you know, hugely different. And also those dialects feed into that character as well. Italy's got the same, you know, someone from Sicily, someone from Puglia, like you say, Naples, Rome. These people are going to speak differently. But just to the to the actual words themselves, there are you know where in English we might have umpteen uh, tons of adge adverbs and adjectives, descriptive words on how someone says something or does something. Whereas Italian is much more straightforward, isn't it? How do you how do you like do you invent new words or do you just how do you do it? 
It depends. I mean, uh, it's a very complex thing because it's not only, I mean, your question is, is very punctual and it's probably the most important problem a translator has. Uh, but what I, how I um, uh, solve, try to solve this problem, first of all, being humble and, and trying not to find a, an answer, find a solution for a problem, but to, you know, make it work in a way. Uh, which could work for this production because of these actors, because of this director, because of this production, and not as a universal thing. That's the first thing. But then the dialects and the words, I maybe invent a word, but I maybe I um, use a very ancient word in Italian that comes from the medieval times sometimes. But the fact is, what is important for me is that a dialect or a slang or a character that comes uh, who comes from Ireland, for example, or Scotland or Australia or uh, Argentina, it's not only a slang. It's always because of something. Um, there was this um, there's a, this amazing book by James Shapiro. Um, it's about Shakespeare, and at some point he says, uh, "There's a reason why every lawyer in Shakespeare's theater is from Naples." There's a, there's a reason why every young man in love is from Florence. So, you know, the, and in opera, I think it's, it's kind of s some characters of opera comes from this kind of schemes. So in a way, I try to match what is, um, for example, a slang in the English language with a reason. Sometimes the registers of language don't come only from a geographical problem, but from a class difference. So mm -hmm. someone who comes from an upper class speaks differently from someone who comes from a um, poor background, for example. And then uh, starting from that, I have to do loads of research. I had to live in England to understand most of what I read in English now. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had to live it in a way. And then I tried to invent it or to reproduce it in the Italian language uh, and writing. And, and sometimes I have to use notes not only lines, not only, uh, you know, word for word, but I have to put some little notes uh, to, to, to make it understandable for an Italian mm. director, actor, uh, spectator, why this character talks like that in a dialect mm. or talks in a slang or talks uh, or, or, is, or is evidently from another part of Italy. And sometimes, mm. yes, I have to invent words. I have to say, usually I invent words when... Uh, when I translate contemporary texts, so mm -hmm. when I don't have historical references. If I have an historical reference, I always try to, to use it. Surely, a, you know, a, you, you look at a work and you think, right, I respect this playwright. You know, you, like you said, you've fallen in love with it. How, um, not slavish, but how devoted to the original do you feel you have to be? I assume it falls down a, a divide somewhere. How devoted to the original text do you feel you have to be, but then knowing you have to marry it to the vernacular, to something that it gets understood? And I guess as an, as an example of that, maybe, is how do you translate jokes? Just to, just to maybe follow up on that, because that's basically related to my question. Less how do, you, how do you do it, but what do you mean? You said try to be faithful, and obviously that's what you try to do, try to be faithful to, to the author. But what does that really mean in your book? Uh well, okay, I'll try to answer the, the whole bunch of questions. First of all, in Italian, there's a very funny joke, and I will do a translation joke now. Uh, I have, I'll have to explain a joke, which is uh, in Italian, to translate, 
uh, is tradurre. In Italian, to betray is tradire. Tradurre and tradire are almost the same word. So to betray something when you're translating it is kind of, you know, biologically in the fact of, of translating it. So, of course, you feel like you're betraying something, <laughs> of course. So when I say try to be faithful, it means that, of course, I will have to be devoted to the text and I will have to trust the author in the sense that if he or she wrote something in that way, I have to um, trust the fact that there's a reason for that. So I cannot put, as long as I can, I, can, I cannot put uh, my interpretation on it, but I have to trust why he or she did it, wrote that. So I have to kind of, I have to put myself in the second place, not in the first place as a translator. So in that sense, I say I have to be faithful. So I have to put him or her before me in the, in the scale of importance. So even if something would work better for me, I still have to analyze why this person, this writer wrote that. And of course, sometimes when you, for example, when you translate from a living author, you have the chance to write to them and, and ask, you know, can you explain me or can you help me understanding? And, and most of the times the authors are amazing in that because they, they really help. But when you can't, uh, it's, it's, it's tricky. So you have to make a choice. Whether you use what works better for you as a translator or it's not always possible to make everyone happy. That's the thing. So when I say I try to be faithful, it means that mm -hmm. I try to um, put myself not in the first place, but in the second place. The author has to be the first thing. How do I translate a joke? Well, that's tricky. Um, it, it's, it's very tricky because it's not only the jokes, not only the words, it's also the humor that changes. So sometimes uh, something which is absolutely hilarious in English doesn't work in Italian. Or, uh, and, and, and sometimes that's the only, almost the only space in which I take some freedom because sometimes uh, whether, uh, you know, of course I try not to... Um, modify the sense but sometimes I have to uh, uh, to make another joke so for example I have probably to explain what I want to say I need an example and I will use misery uh, this this play I translated which is basically uh, going back on stage next week in Parma uh, so in this um, so misery is a perfect example uh, we have one character very cultivated he's a writer very famous one um, American um, and, and he's, he's rich, he's, he's spoiled, he's very good at his job. And then we have <clears throat> Annie, uh, redneck, hillbilly, uh, Midwest, not cultivated, uh, very, she speaks uh, directly without synonyms, without metaphors, just goes for it. Uh, at some point, um, she wants to, do a to make a compliment to him saying, oh, what you wrote was very good. And, and, and she wants to make a compliment which is understandable uh, by him. So she wants to say, um, you did a masterpiece like the Sistine Chapel. But she cannot remember the name of the guy uh, who painted the Sistine Chapel, which is Michelangelo. Uh, 
And so in, in, in the English text, in the English play, she says, oh, you did something really amazing. Like that thing that, that uh, uh, there's, there's a word that the American people use to every Latin ethnicity. Mexican, Argentinian, Italian, Greek, mm. like Hispanic, Spic. No, it's something. No, mm. it's it's like Lando, Mando, something like that. Okay. I know it's it's oh. like uh, La- Latino. It's Mando, I think, because they they kind of, but it's just a Midwest thing. It's not, mm. not even in the proper English. And so she says, "Oh, you did you did a masterpiece. You you you." Um, your work is like the Sistine Chapel by that guy Mando which of course has many meanings it means that she doesn't even divide between mexican people immigrants in america and italian from the renaissance Mm -hmm. so how do i translate that it's impossible to translate that because i cannot translate the american midwest 80s racism uh, that some redneck americans had towards everyone who was generically Latin, speaking something which could be Spanish or Italian or whatever. Mm. So I, I had to make a completely different joke. So I had to put in, mis, in, in Annie's words, uh, do you know the Ninja Turtles? I had to put in the Ninja Turtles because it was the, the only way in which I could deliver the fact that she was referring to something absolutely not cultivated, trying to make a compliment resulting completely inefficient and insufficient to him and also uh, insulting. It's not the best solution. It was the best I could do after one week of research. So sometimes to, to, to translate jokes, is, it, it can be really tricky. But, but it makes sense because, uh, and it speaks to the, the idea of translating into the vernacular, you want people in that theatre to have an experience is close to possible, and what you're doing is actually very respectful to the original writer because you're trying to create an experience. They're not going to have that experience if if you try, if you just slipped in the word Mando, it's not going to make any sense. Um, it's going to be something about it. it it's, it's going to be. It's not going to work. But so by translating that joke as you did means that it's it's as close to the original sense feeling of the that the audience gets that the that the original writer wanted. Yeah, in that case, I have to add one very important thing, that in that case, I had the luck to be in rehearsal so I could explain to the director and to the actors why I did that. So I think for a translator, I think this is very important. I think that everyone who's producing something which involves a translation should involve a translator as, you know, uh, the most time possible because uh, sometimes a translator doesn't have the chance to... Uh, of course, a text should work without the, you know, the living word of a translator, but not always it's possible. So uh, in, that, in that sense, I was lucky because I could be there and explain that. And the director can decide. I'm also, as a translator, I'm also uh, very respectful of the, th- of the fact that uh, maybe a director could say, okay, this is a good idea, but I, don't, I prefer not to use it and I prefer to stick to the... To the um, to the original text, so a translator should always be faithful to uh, the writer, but also to the living thing that will be the show. Mm-hmm. We cannot be, we are not intellectuals in this way. We have to be um, open to, you know, everything has to be said and delivered. It's not something we can do as, as, as academics. Mm-hmm.
you mentioned that you, you you sometimes have contact with with authors who are living if you need some advice i mean do do they are they generally do they get involved are they interested or do they just kind of let you do what you need and only only respond if you need help well um to, to answer this question i have to say that at the moment i'm working um not only as a translator by myself but also in a couple with um very important translator in italy she's called monica Gabuani, and she gave me the chance to work with her uh, and especially with her i'm working on translations of living authors uh, and i have to say that in general my experience until now is that in general authors are very happy that someone is translating their texts because they know that probably a different audience will you know enjoy their plays uh, so in general, they are very, very uh, available to 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 give answers and to in in general when someone and and I think I can say that also as an author, if someone would ask me questions about my play, uh, and and if I detect that these questions come from you know something a curiosity or and not a criticism, uh, I will always be very happy to to to. To help them, so I've always received very good help from the authors in general. So I I, um, I wouldn't imagine a, a writer being um, nasty about that, because I think it it goes against their interests. So in general, my experience is that everyone has always been uh, extremely good with us. So you mentioned you're you're doing some translation in this in this duo at the moment. It'll be interesting also to hear what what other projects you have lined up in the, in currently or in the next months, uh, just to, to get a flavor of your life for our listeners. Yeah, I'm writing a new play, uh, rehearsing one of my old plays for this competition, and translating the text. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> oh yes, and of course, oh, I had to mention that I will be back in Brussels in in, in a week actually because I'm also rehearsing. Um, a play with a non-professional company I'm working with in Brussels uh, and, and so I'm also rehearsing with them and I see them once a month, one week per month in Brussels, so I'm back and forth Amazing, it's brilliant that you're so busy Francesco and it's been really great to chat with you today, very cryptic about this play by a British playwright that you're translating with Skirted yeah. over that. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Let's keep let's keep the hype. Up. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> for now. Well, it's wonderful. Francesco, thank you so thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, it's been it's been great to chat with you. Oh, thank you guys. Really, it was it's been amazing. It, it's I have to say, it's not so common for us to talk about our our job in this way. So thank you for for giving. Uh, the chance for for me for us to talk about it because I think it's always very uh, interesting uh, or at least it is for, for for us so let's let's hope it's also for, for other people but but it's not it's not that common so thank you very well, much thank you for sharing and thanks Phil and thanks everyone for listening and we'll be back next month bye thank you Francesco uh, yes good um we still, we still want to know what the play is, but uh, I doubt, doubt you're going to. Yeah. Tell us. yeah. <laughs>